Right now, we are in a series called The Stories Within the Story. And obviously, the story of Advent, uh, the story of the coming, first coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, is considered, and rightfully so, the greatest story ever told. There's a lot of little stories contained within that story, real lives of real people whose lives were affected um, by the coming of Christ. And so we've looked at Zechariah, and we've looked at Mary, and this week we're looking at Joseph, and next week we plan to look at Simeon and these different people and how their lives were impacted uh, when Christ came. Um, because that's kind of how life works in general. We all are living our lives. We all have our own stories, but there is a greater story that's being told, a work that God is doing uh, throughout the world, throughout history, of redeeming a people for himself. And as we come to know Christ, uh, our stories and our lives find their meaning within that story, within, within the person and work of Christ and what he's doing. He gives meaning and definition to our lives. And each of us um, who call ourselves Christians this morning have had our lives radically impacted by Christ in that first advent just like these folks, and as we look at this this morning, we might find some things, and I believe we will from their lives, continue to, uh, that can help us in our lives, in our journey um, towards Christ. Today, we're looking at uh, the story of Joseph, and when I read the Gospels, uh, and you know, Matthew and Luke is pretty much where we get all of our information on Joseph, um, when I think about Joseph, and we don't have a lot there, okay? I mean, there's, there's just not just tons of stuff on Joseph because, well, it's not really about Joseph, right? It's about Jesus. And so we're kind of limited in what we know about Joseph, but what we do have is very important, powerful stuff. And when you, when you walk away from reading the nativity stories and the, 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 the story from Matthew or Luke about Joseph, especially Matthew that we're going to look at this morning, you kind of walk away thinking, okay, Joseph was a good man, right? Uh, he, he's presented that way, a godly guy, uh, but also kind of as a, as a man's man, right? I mean, this guy, he's, he's a blue-collar worker, carpenter. Um, he's like saving his, his uh, son from death and things of that nature, a brave guy. Um, and so that's kind of the, the image I, I have of that and, and something that I think is refreshing this time of year uh, in the middle of all the, the pageantry and all that kind of stuff as we celebrate Christmas. We get this great picture of, of good biblical manhood um, of what it looks like to be a godly dad um, and a godly husband um, from Joseph. And that's not really the angle we're taking this morning, but it's, it's refreshing nonetheless. Um, this week, we went to the Candlelight Processional this weekend up at um, Epcot. And if you've never been, it's, it's phenomenal. It's great. They're singing all the great old tra uh, traditional Christmas songs, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and all that good stuff. And they've got the choirs from all the high schools around the area and the professional singers too. And the Voices of Liberty and the full orchestra. And, and then they bring a celebrity in to read the, 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 the scripture narrative to you. And that can kind of go either way, right? And you're kind of like, I don't know if this person's ever read this story before. It's great that they're reading it tonight, I guess. Uh, then other times, it's, you know, they might bring in a, a known Christian or whatever. And, um, and the night we were there, they had, uh, they had Trace Adkins. Now, if you don't know who that is, he's, he's up there and he's like in all black with a black cowboy hat. He's a country music star with this big, deep voice that kind of makes the, the, the walls like shake when he talks, right? And so in the midst of all the glittering robes and the lights and the trumpets and the green robes and the yellow robes and all that fanfare, here's this man in black. Not Johnny Cash. That would have been great, but um, <laughs> no longer with us. But Trace Adkins reading to us from the Bible. And, uh, and it made me think about... Joseph, not because Trace Atkins necessarily is much like Joseph. I don't know Trace Atkins, but just this kind of this picture of like, here, like here's now this dude's a dude, right? Um, this is a this is a dude, and when I read the story of Joseph, that's what I think of right here in the middle of this story. Here is this Indiana Jones type character in my mind, um, kind of coming to the rescue at times from a human perspective for the sake of his family. Um, but in Joseph, what we really see is someone 
whose life gets incredibly complex incredibly quickly. <laughs> Things seem pretty simple at the beginning of Joseph's story, probably, uh, you, you, would, you would think, but they get complex really, really fast. He has big decisions he has to make, and he has to make them very quickly. And life seems to snowball as we read through his story and get more and more complex and difficult, and the choices get harder, and the pressure gets heavier. He's dealing with hard things. This is not some cute little story. This is a rugged story. This is an R-rated story that we're going to read this morning. Let me be very clear. It's rated R for violence, um, if nothing else. And right in the middle of it is Joseph dealing with these hard things. And in the midst of that, Joseph's response in all this is incredibly refreshing. And here, here, here's the thing I want to take away this morning. And simple. It's very simple the way Joseph responds in the midst of all this. Because when life gets complex and when life gets difficult and the choices get hard and a lot's at stake and the pressure in your life begins to rise as it does for all of us in particular seasons, it's important to keep things at that point simple. I heard somebody say one time, when you don't know what to do, do what you know to do, right? There are some things that, okay, I know to get out of bed this morning, step one, right? I know to brush my teeth, right? I know to put on some clothes and get, go, go to my job. Right? You just... When you don't know what else to do, do what you know to do. And from a spiritual perspective, that's important too. When there's spiritual stress and when there's all kinds of difficult decisions happening in your life and there's all kinds of struggles and there's all kinds of complexity that comes into your life, it's very important to keep things simple spiritually. If not, that's where we get sidetracked. So look with me in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now let's pause there. <coughs> we talked last week a little bit about this idea of being betrothed. Um, marriages in their day were arranged uh, typically, and, and the way that usually would have worked is Joseph's dad would have arranged something with Mary's dad. And there's a good chance that these two people would have known each other for much of their lives, growing up in a small village together. I mean, it, it, typically, that's the way it would have been done. You would have known this family. These families would have known each other. And they might have had this agreement for quite a long time, as a matter of fact. We don't know how long. But then at some point, they entered into what they call the betrothal period, which usually lasted about a year. And it's kind of like our modern-day engagement, but like on steroids, okay? And so because it, it, it was contractual, um, you actually, there were legally in some ways, husband and wife, as you see them referred to here. Um, but the marriage wasn't consummated. It was, it was, they, weren't, they weren't married uh, in the fullest sense of the word. But they were married in the sense that there was a contract. Some things had, had uh, some money had, had a dowry and things like that had, had exchanged. And they were preparing for that marriage day. And to actually get a divorce, they would have, to, to separate, to not do the marriage, they would have actually had to have gotten a written divorce. And the only way that would have been legal would have been for Adultery. And so Mary is found during this time to be with child. This presents difficulty from Joseph. Now Luke tells the story from Mary's perspective. Matthew tells us the story from Luke's. So Mary's found to be with child, and we see that it's a work of God, and we know that. We've been talking about it for a couple thousand years now. Child is of the Holy Spirit, and it's a miracle, not a typical conception. But imagine, put yourself for a moment in Joseph's shoes, right? This girl that you might have known for years, who you... This marriage has been arranged. You don't arrange marriages for your child with shady people. You do it with people of high character and high repute. And so I'm sure Mary's reputation was stellar, as we can tell here Joseph's was as well. And now all of a sudden you find out 
she's pregnant, and you know you are not the father. And so I cannot imagine, but the the difficulty and the turmoil and the, the stress, it says he's pondering these things, he's thinking these things over, and he decides, I'll just... I'll just divorce her, but I'll do it quietly. Now, why is that a big deal? Because in their culture, the thing to do was to do it very publicly and to kind of shun the person in the process, to kind of win, right? And and people certainly don't do divorces like that anymore. Um, That certainly died out 2,000 years ago. No, of course not. That's exactly the way people do it today, right? And so it's who can win, who can make the other person look bad many times. And so in their culture, okay, I think you've committed adultery, so I'm going to blast it from the rooftops. I want everybody to know so they'll walk away from you, won't look at you in the street, and you make life very hard on you. That was the cultural norm. Joseph's not normal. He's godly, right? And so even in the midst of this, he's grieved, obviously, but he still wants to be a respectful, just man, as it says, unwilling to put her to shame. So he resolves to divorce her quietly. What Luke is wanting us to see here is the sterling character of Joseph. Verse 20, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now notice how God addresses Joseph. It's very important. The angel, rather, but God giving him the message. Joseph son of David, reminding him of his lineage, of his ties to the messianic line, to the throne of David. That's important. And God gives Joseph just the info he needs to this angel, that God is at work, that his son's name is going to, he's going to have a son, his name's going to be Jesus, and he's going to be a savior. He's the savior, taking away the sins of his people. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so that's kind of the, the, the more famous of the passages that gets read at Christmas time. But there's more about Joseph. So look with me at chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. This is about two years later, roughly, year and a half, two years later. The wise men have come at this point uh, to, to bring gifts to, to, babe, to, to Jesus and to celebrate him. And this is what we see in verse 13. Now, when they, that's the wise men, had departed, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So right there in the middle of all this, there's this difficult, painful ugly, murderous scene. And here's Joseph right in the middle of it and Jesus born into this. This is the kind of world Jesus was born into. This is the kind of world where Jesus came to save people from their sins. And we sometimes think back that, oh, things were so much better way back when. Things have always been, ever since the fall, really bad and really sinful and really broken. And it's a broken world that Jesus came to. 
to save. Verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So with Joseph, we, are, we get a picture of someone walking with God <coughs> and having to do so through very trying, confusing, difficult, complex times. Think about it. Mary's pregnant, so he's going to divorce her. He thinks he's got it all figured out, right? It's unfortunate. He's heartbroken. Got to do what I have to do kind of thing. It would have been, he would have incurred shame as well for taking her as his wife after this because people would have assumed, well, either you don't care about the immorality or you were the one immoral with her. Either way, he's going he's to endure some kind of reproach by taking her as his wife, even though we know he's doing a just and godly thing. And then he has a he dream, he, right, he finds out through the dream that the baby's from the Holy Spirit, it's from the Messiah. And once the baby's born, within a couple of years, the baby's life is at stake as Herod is trying to kill him. And Joseph is fleeing places, moving ultimately to Nazareth as he seeks to protect Jesus. And there he is, this action hero figure saving his family. And in the midst of these complex things happening, confusion and change and difficulty, running and being afraid, Joseph making very profound but simple decisions. And when life seems hard, when times get complex, we need to remember the same simple things we see in Joseph's life. So I want to give you three simple things in complex times to remember. Number one, just three words. Number one, listen. Be spiritually receptive to God's leading. Listen, be spiritually receptive to God's leading. That's the first thing we learn from Joseph. He's continually shown as someone willing to listen and be spiritually receptive receptive to whatever word God has for him. Notice God is trusting Joseph with the most important information on the planet at this time. Think about that. It's the identity of the Son of God. This is critical information. At this point, there are only a few people on the planet that God is entrusting this info to, and Joseph was one of the primary ones because God didn't just choose Mary, he chose Joseph. He chose them both to rear Jesus, to raise Jesus in, this, in their home. Notice some of the things about the way the angel addresses Joseph. We mentioned son of David, right? He calls him Joseph, son of David, reminding him of his link to the messianic line. He tells him that the child is from the Holy Spirit, that the angel is asking Joseph simply to trust in this point, to this point that this is a miracle, that he can trust Mary and that this is all God's work. And then he says, you'll name him Jesus and he'll save his people from their sins. Now this is heavy information. This is pointing us to the fact that the child's savior, that he's Messiah, He's come to rescue his people, right? And a particular people, as we know, God's people here from their sin. Now, God didn't just send a message to Joseph and say, take her as your wife. Like, God could have just said, you know what, Joseph? Here's a message from an angel. Marry this woman, because I said to, and I'll give you more info later. But he didn't do that. He gives him a lot more information than that, right? I mean, just in the title, Son of David, there's implications there. Why is God re reminding me of this? And the fact that he'll name him Jesus and he'll save his people from their sins. The fact that this is from the Holy Spirit. It's full of spiritual truth to be spiritually discerned. God is leading Joseph. He's wanting Joseph to listen, to discern what's happening here. Chapter 2, verse 13, Joseph is told to go to Egypt to avoid Herod. 
And he's told to remain there until he's told otherwise. In other words, go, wait, and listen until I speak again. He's going to have to remain receptive and to continue to wait upon the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 22, Joseph had a very bad feeling in the pit of his stomach, and he's afraid, right, of what's going to happen next. But after being warned in a dream, it's then that he withdraws the Nazareth. Even when he has this pit feeling in the pit of his stomach, and he's, he's afraid, but he waits till he gets a word from God. He's warned in a dream before he makes the next move. The point is he's constantly waiting and listening and being receptive to God's leading. And when things are changing and life kind of feels crazy and complex and begins to get more and more difficult and challenging, we have to be spiritually receptive to God's leading and willing to wade into the deep waters of God's word. Now, we should always be spiritually receptive, but God may choose to really reveal a truth to us that we really need in sometimes the most difficult and trying times. Joseph would need to continually hear from God because of the difficult season that he was in. He, he needed to be constantly led. And at all times we need to hear from God. But we especially need to hear from God in complex, difficult, and trying seasons. And those are the seasons many times you'll be most tempted to close your Bible and to not read it. And you'll be most tempted to go here, there, and everywhere for advice and counsel except for to get in a quiet place, to open God's Word, and to talk to God in prayer. And those are the seasons we need it most. But many times, we don't. It's so easy because what, what we want to do is we want to distract ourselves from the difficulty and the pain we're in. And we tend to kind of push away from those quiet moments that we need so much. It's like when you're, when you, when you're out in the middle of nowhere, okay, because you're, you know, from here to go out in the middle. When we go out in the middle of nowhere, it's usually because we're going to, um, to, to a corn maze or something like that, right? Or you're going to a Christmas tree farm or whatever. And so you drive out in the middle of nowhere and where there's nothing but barbecue shops and, 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 and gas stations, where I'm from, okay? And you get out there and you don't really know where you're going and that's when your phone doesn't work. That's when the cell phone tower no longer will reach you. It's gotten better and better, right? Because we've got towers everywhere now. But it's still, there's those places that you just don't have it. And that's usually when you need it the most because you don't know where you're going. You don't know left from right. You don't know north from south. You're not sure what in the world, where in the world you're going because you don't usually go there. And in life, when things are difficult and trying and you don't know left from right, and you don't know up from down, and, you're, and things have gotten more and more difficult and complex, that's when you need someone to help you navigate life. That's when you need, more than any time, God to lead you through his word and by the power of his spirit and to help you make good choices. So that's the time we have to lean into and listen to God's word. As the Bible tells us to be quick to listen. So how do you and I remain spiritually receptive? We do so by being willing to listen to God's word, to consistently seek to be in and around God's word. That means opening God's word on a regular basis. That means coming to church and hearing God's word preached. That, that just means putting myself in situations where I know God speaks when his word is being proclaimed or his word is being read, and then I can get along in the quiet and meditate and think on that word and pray and talk to God and allow God to speak to my heart. You and I may never have a dream such as Joseph had, but we have the word of God where he will daily lead us and wants to speak to us from his word. And our level of spiritual receptivity is directly related to our relationship to God's word. He said, well, I'm willing to listen to God. I'm willing to be led by God. I'm willing to, for God to guide and direct my life. If we don't spend time in God's word, if we don't put ourselves in, in, in places where we hear 
from God's word, we're fooling ourselves because that's how God speaks to us is through his word. So we need to stay spiritually receptive. We need to be listening to God, which means we need to allow God's word to always be in front of us. Secondly, second, very simple thing is, so we had listen. Secondly, obey. Be obedient to God's commands. Joseph is not just consistently listening to God. He's always obeying what he hears coming from God through the angel. In fact, if I had one major takeaway from the life of Joseph, it's simply this. Obey God. If you could sum up jo what we know about Joseph is this, it's this. He, he's a man that obeys God. He's a picture of just quiet obedience before the Lord. Over and over again, he gets a command and he obeys consistently like clockwork. In fact, it's the way he proves his spiritual receptivity is by his obedience. The way we know Joseph is spiritually receptive in listening to God is he obeys God. And as he does so, he continually is led by the Lord. We never see Joseph waver in faith. We're also never told that Joseph believed God. Did you notice that? A lot of times we read these stories and we say, you know, and they had, we see their faith. It talks about their faith and, you know, believe or you didn't believe like we saw with Zechariah. Where Joseph, we're never told he believed God. We're never told he didn't believe God. Rather, we are shown that he believed God by his obedience. Nobody doubts Joseph's faith because his actions show that he believed God's promise and that the child was from the Holy Spirit. We'd be foolish to, to, to doubt Joseph's faith because of what we see in the word from his actions. And you know, later on, one of Joseph's younger sons would write these words in James 1.22. Be doers of the word not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He'd seen that in his, in his dad or at least heard about it. James 2.18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. The Christian life is always lived by faith and it's always manifested in obedience, in obedience. Sometimes we try and complicate it, but one of the most important questions anybody in the room can ask ourselves today is am I obeying God? Is there an area in my life where I know I am not obeying God? Where I'm not obeying the word of God? Is there an area in my life where I just simply know I am out of alignment with God's word? God's word says this and I'm living this. God's word says this and I'm over here believing this. God tells me to do this and I'm doing this. God tells me not to do this, but I'm doing this. Are there areas in my life where I'm disobeying God? It's a very simple thing. But we're to be doers of the word, not hearers only, as Joseph's son, James, would later tell us. Notice the two big pieces of information Joseph is given in the first dream before that first act of obedience. It's real simple. This is a work of God. Right? Child is from the Holy Spirit. God is at work. This baby Jesus will save his people from their sins. See, in the Old Testament, people sometimes ask, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Were they saved by works and were saved by grace? No, 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 no. They were saved by grace, through faith, as they looked forward to the coming Messiah who would one day come and die for their sins. That's why all those sacrifices looked forward to that they made in, those, in the temple. And we look back in faith at the fact that the Messiah has already come and laid down his life and bore our sin on the cross and rose from the dead. And we look back in faith and we're saved by grace through faith. And Jesus and his gospel should always be at the very center of our obedience. We see it in Joseph, right? His name would be Jesus... He'll save his people from their sins. Now, go, marry this woman, take this child. Name, he goes. Angel appears again. Go do this. He goes. Flee to Egypt. Flee to Israel. Go. Oh, obey, 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 obey. He's not given a lot of information in the scriptures that we know other than God's at work. This is your Savior, right? 
And our obedience should always be rooted in and driven in that. What is God saying? What is God doing? What does God reveal to me in his word? And it comes from a place of understanding who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. As Joseph was looking forward to the fact, one day, this Messiah, this Jesus, this child of mine, is going to bear my sin on the cross. We don't know what all he knew and understood. But he was going to somehow rescue me from my sins. And we look back at the fact that he's already done that in faith. And it motivates our obedience as we go forward. And the Holy Spirit spoken of in the story. Don't be afraid. This child is of the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit indwells every Christian believer today and enables us to obey God for the glory of Jesus. Notice two things about Joseph's obedience. It was consistent. You notice that? Time and time again. Verses 24 and 25 of chapter 1, he took her and named the baby Jesus. Right when he was born, just as in the first dream he was told. In the second dream, he's told to rise, take the child, flee to Egypt. Verse 14 of chapter 2, what does he do? He rises, takes the child, moves to Egypt. In the third dream, he's told to go to Israel. What does he do? He goes to Israel. Then he has a fourth dream and is warned of Herod's son. And what does he do? He ends up in Nazareth. It's consistency over and over and over again. There's never a point where he gets one of those dreams and he's kind of like, you know what? I'm just, I need a break. This is too much moving, God. This is too, I, I, this is too hard. You know what? Catch me in the next one. I, I'll, I'll obey on the next one. It's this consistent obedience. God has spoken. I must obey. What is my choice? I will obey the Lord. And when we believe what God has done in Jesus, just as Joseph believed what he would do in Jesus, we can by faith walk with God in consistent obedience. We can. Not every now and then obedience. Not perfection, but in consistent, faithful walk before God that characterizes our life. We can be known as a people that obey God. Not perfectly, but that consistently obey God. You say, I don't know. I don't know if, I can, I don't know if that, that, that's possible in my life. In Jesus, it's possible. Why? Because he saves his people from their sins. Jesus didn't come and die to make your sin tolerable before the Lord. He didn't come to die to simply make you better. He didn't come to die so that our sin's somehow more bearable now. He came to, to rescue us from our sins. To, to ultimately to take our, our sins away. And yes, he removes that stain of reproach so we can stand before God in his righteousness, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so when God looks at me and God looks at you through faith in Christ, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our past. He doesn't see our shame. He doesn't see the sin you committed yesterday or today or you'll commit 10 years from now. He just sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And one day, yes, you're going to be saved from the presence of sin forever and ever and ever and never even be tempted to sin again in Christ. But he also gives you the power through Christ to have victory over your sin today. Today. To break sinful habits and patterns in our lives. He came to save his people from their sins. That is the heart of Christmas. Consistent obedience. We also see Joseph had unconditional obedience. He never places conditions on the obedience. He never says, Egypt, what about, you know, another locale? He never does that. He never tries to edit the dreams like we try to edit the Bible at times. He just, it's unconditional. Call him Jesus. He names him Jesus. Take her as your wife. He immediately does that. Flee to Egypt. He goes to Egypt. Go to the land of Israel. Goes there. Right? I mean, it's just boom, boom, boom. Exactly what he's told to do. 
Never pushing back, never editing, never negotiating, only obeying. And that's what, this is what true obedience looks like. It's consistent and it's unconditional. We place condition on it. It's not obedience. It's a negotiation. If you're negotiating with God over the things you'll be obedient in and you won't be obedient in, you're not obeying God. You're arm wrestling God and you're going to lose. You're debating with God. You're, we're not obeying God. When we're bringing something else to the table and kind of pushing back, oh, I see what you've laid out here before me, Lord. Now, how do you like this number? You know, that's not how it works. Our ultimate model of obedience is, is Jesus. You know, Philippians tells us he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's Paul's way of saying he was really obedient to the point of he was told to go to the cross and he went. Even death, even death on a cross, that's the ultimate picture of unconditional obedience. It's in Christ. And as those who obey with faith in Jesus at the center of our obedience, why would we place conditions? Why would we edit? Why would we negotiate when we have a Lord who didn't edit out or negotiate out the cross? We unconditionally obey. And when things get crazy, when life gets confusing, when life gets hard, and you don't know up from down or left from right, there's one thing we can always remember. What does God say that I need to obey? What does the revealed will of God tell me? Confused? Does God want me to do this? Does God want me to do this? When you don't know anything else, do what you know he wants you to do. That he's revealed in his word. What's in here you don't have to pray about. In fact, you go in here and you begin to read it and pray whether to obey it or not. You're not really praying. You're delaying your obedience. We just obey it. And our prayer should be, God, help me to obey it by your grace, for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we listen. We obey. It's real simple. And number three, third takeaway from Joseph, is the word embrace. Listen, obey, embrace. Embrace your role in God's mission. Joseph's obedience made something very clear. He was all in with his role in God's mission. It ultimately led to him taking responsibility for his role. Notice a couple of key things from the first dream. He's called the son of David. We mentioned that. Take Mary as your wife. Call his name Jesus. All of these are connected to his fatherhood of Jesus as the adoptive father of Jesus. When it was the father who named the child in their culture. And so when he says, you shall call his name Jesus, he's letting Joseph know, you're going to raise this boy like he's your boy. You're going to take Mary as his wife. You're taking responsibility for her. And by so, you're taking responsibility for the child that she is carrying. Why? Why would I have to do this? What's the purpose? He told you when he called your name. You're Joseph, son of David. Jesus gets the legal right to the throne of David through Joseph. The legal right to the throne of David comes through the line of of Joseph. That's why we're given Joseph's lineage in the gospel. It's because that's where the legal right to rule and to, right, to be Messiah legally comes from. Joseph's role is incredibly important. So what's he going to need to be? He's going to need to be the adoptive father of the Son of God. While he biologically would not be the father, he would adopt Jesus into his family and raise him like he was his own. Joseph's responsibility we see played out. He marries her. He names the baby. He we then see he's protecting the baby. He, at this point, a toddler. He flees to Egypt, protects the child from Achaelius by going to Nazareth. 
See that paternal instinct kicking in when he has that gut check and it says he's afraid even after Herod dies because of Herod's son and sure enough he's warned in a dream. Is that, is that paternal instinct taking over as the protector of his family? And Joseph's role is one of adventure and risk. He's fleeing town for their lives in the middle of the night. He's the one man on the entire planet that ever lived that God chose to be the human protector and provider for his son. He would risk his reputation, his future, his everything for the sake of God's mission in Christ. And Joseph gladly mans up, listens, obeys, and embraces his role in the mission. Now, you and I are not called to be the adoptive father of Jesus or to protect Jesus in any way, but we are all called to embrace our role in the adventurous and sometimes risky mission of God. It may mean risking our lives to advance the gospel somewhere. It may mean going to new places, meeting new people. It may mean our family looking different than we planned. But we must gladly go into God's mission. We all have different gifts and personalities and talents, but God has a role for every one of his people in his mission. We live on the other side of the birth of Christ, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And we are charged with making disciples. We're charged with advancing the gospel, representing Christ as ambassadors in a fallen world, being the church, not just going to church, but being the church. Each of us has a role in that, a gift, a way God has wired us to bless his church and to bless this world for the glory of Christ. And most of us will never be famous. Most of us will never have a book written about of us. Most of us will simply be role players in this. Not superstars with book deals, crowds, people asking our opinions on things. Just doing our role like Joseph did his role. I heard a pastor at a conference recently tell a story about his son playing basketball and being really down after not getting in the game. <coughs> He's driving home and he said he looked at his son and he said, what's the matter? He said, well, isn't it obvious? I didn't even play. He, said, he looked at his son and he said, well, of course not. I would have to talk with the coach if you would have. You're not very good. He was trying to win the game. He began to have this kind of lighthearted discussion with his son. And he said, I used this as an object lesson for him, a lesson for him to understand that his role was still important even though his role wasn't getting in the game. His role as a cheerleader on the sidelines for his teammates, his role as someone that the better players on the team practice against to make them better, that he could work and he could get better and he could improve and maybe he would get to play and maybe he would start, but he's got a role for where, where he's at. And at the end of the day, the pastor made this point. He said, in life, most of our kids are going to be role players one day. They're not going to run companies and they're not going to be president. They're not going to be the most important people in the town or in the state, or in the country, most of them are just going to simply play a role, and that's okay. And I would say this, in God's mission, we're all just role players. None of us are the star of the story. It's not about us, and we've all got to learn to play whatever our role is, which, like Joseph, just simply means listening to and obeying God and embracing that role. Let me ask you, what responsibility has God given you in his mission? <coughs> so I don't know. I don't know if he's given me a responsibility. Do you have a spouse? husband or a wife, did you know that's tied to the mission of God? That as you love your wife and you love and your husband, and that your marriage is to represent the relationship between Christ and the church to a lost and dying world? That the primary illustration God gives us of the love between, a, between Christ and his church is that of a husband and a wife? 
and it's, our marriages are bigger than us and more important than us, and what's going on in your marriage is more important than what's, not that that's not important, but it's bigger than that, that's actually tied to the mission of God, the part of our responsibility as husbands and wives is representing Christ well and his gospel well to a lost and dying world through our marriage? Are you a parent? You're shaping young minds. Your first responsibility to your children is to make them disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. To put the gospel of Jesus in front of them. To love them. To pray for them. To point them to Jesus. Are you a church member? You should be if you're not somewhere. that preaches the Bible and tries to live it out. And if you are, you've got a role here in your local church or wherever your local church is of serving God's people and serving God through the local church and using your gifts in the context of the local church. That's why he gave it to you. You say, well, I've got the gift of mercy, but I don't, you know, I'm not plugged into the local church. Then you are not effectively stewarding the gift of mercy. He didn't give it to you for you. He gave it to you for us. Whoever that might, us might be. You're the local church. Let me ask you this. Do you have a job? Or go to school. God has a role for you there too. If you represent him there as an ambassador. And how you do your work. And how you go about it. Not just in whether you share the gospel with the people or not. That's great. Please do that. But don't do it and be lazy. Don't do it and not do your job well. Don't do it and be a jerk to people at work. Right? We represent. We, we work to the glory of God. And we share Christ on the mission field there. Do you have a place that you live? You've got neighbors, right? We're called to love our neighbor. Well, I thought that was generally speaking, right? Love your neighbor. That's everybody. Well, it is generally speaking, but not to the neglect of the one that lives beside us. We need to take love our neighbors, not just generally, but literally. Do we love our neighbors? Are we good neighbors? Do you have friends? Be a good friend. Point them to the friend that sticks closer to a than a brother. My point is, we've got all these different roles we play in life. But the most important one is our role in God's mission. And it's connected to all of it. All of it. We all have lots of responsibility in the gospel mission. The question is whether we are all in and we are embracing that responsibility. We can't be all in and divorce our identity in Christ and his mission from responsibility that God has given us in this life. In these various roles. As a spouse or a parent or a friend or church member or neighbor or worker. All in means all in. Joseph was chosen by God for a purpose. He listened to God's directive, his commands. He obeyed God and he fully embraced the responsibilities God gave him. And then he just disappears. Just disappears. Most likely dying before Jesus even began his ministry. He never pops up again in the gospels after Jesus' childhood. Jesus' mother and siblings are mentioned in Jesus' ministry, but not Joseph. On the cross, Jesus asked John, his close friend and disciple, to take care of his mom. He would not have done that, I don't believe, if Joseph was still living. Every indication from Scripture is that Joseph was dead by the time Jesus was baptized and called his first disciples. He never saw Jesus turn water to wine. He never saw him walk on water or heal the sick or cast out demons or raise the dead or be crucified for our sins and be raised again. But it was Joseph who likely Jesus first called Abba as a small child. It is Joseph who likely taught Jesus his trade of carpentry that Jesus made a living at before he went into ministry. It is Joseph who gave the Son of God a home where the Gospel of Luke tells us he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Joseph played a critical role 
not the ultimate role, but a critical role in God's story. But he simply listened to God, obeyed God, and embraced whatever role God put in front of him. And then he just disappears. And for most of us, that's all God asks for us. Listen to God's word, obey God's word, embrace our role in the mission, and one day disappear. And people may not remember us, and they may not talk about us, and we may not get the headlines. But the Christ we proclaim continues to get shared, and his gospel continues to go forth. Let me ask you. Life getting complex? Tends to this time of year. Difficult challenges coming your way? Sometimes hard to know up from down? Maybe you need to simplify this morning. Listen to God. What would he have you obey consistently, uncompromisingly, unconditionally? And what role in his mission would he have you embrace? Maybe this morning, the life of quiet obedience before God, simply living faithfully before the Lord, maybe you just need to know that that starts with simply knowing one simple thing is Joseph knew. God is here, he's at work, and Jesus saves people from sin. We have to start somewhere, right? The first thing about understanding God's will for your life is understanding the good news of Jesus. That you are a sinner, just as I am a sinner. That we're all sinners. We live in a broken world and we're a broken people. But that God sent Jesus to die for our sins. That he bore our sin on the cross so you don't have to bear the punishment for your sin. Through faith in Jesus, you can escape God's wrath because Jesus took the full brunt of God's wrath for us and rose victoriously from the dead. Just as we sang earlier, because he lives, right? I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, you can be forgiven of your sin. This morning, if you've never been forgiven of your sin, the Bible simply asks that you repent of your sin and place simple faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, believing he died and rose again for you. Have you done that? You know, Joseph was awesome, but he needed Jesus to save him from his sins too. There's never been anyone to live who didn't need Jesus as Savior. Do you know him, do you know him this morning as Savior? Let's pray.